Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Women's Strength Collective. As always, I'm your host, Shay Zaru, and each episode you'll be joining me to talk about a topic related to women's lifting, health, and life. Today, I have my good friend James Kun joining me to chat about all things nutrition. It's definitely one of those topics that has many layers and there is so much misinformation surrounding it online and also on social media. It's definitely tricky to navigate and I know I'm not the only one who has logged on and seen some really bold claims from a whole bunch of people who are probably not qualified to be making them and it can be incredibly difficult to decide what to listen to and what maybe you should put to the side. We spend the episode today talking about high return on investment factors in nutrition, different methods of dieting and what to pull from absolutely all of them, how stress impacts the body, navigating body image and dieting as a nutritionist, and we round it out by chatting about protein intake and we also touch on being a vegan as well and what we need to consider in that realm. James has an incredible amount of knowledge and puts out lots of great content on his Instagram to help simplify a topic that is often very, very overcomplicated. If you enjoy my chat with him, please head to his Instagram, which is linked in our show notes. But that is enough for me. I hope you guys enjoy my chat with James Kuhn. And as always, if you enjoy today's episode, let us know. Welcome James to the podcast. James is one of my, I'd say, longtime good friends. And he is someone I look to when I have any questions about nutrition. But before we get into it, James, if you just want to give yourself a bit of an introduction, who you are, your studies, and maybe what the past few years has looked like for you too. Yeah, cool. Um, So I'm James, obviously, as Shay just said. Basically, I am a registered nutritionist who works as an online coach or an online consultant when it comes to nutrition and also a little bit of training. But these days I focus more on the nutrition side of things, um, mainly because that's where I like to dive deep into the, the research and what interests me. I guess how it all got started, probably somewhat, you know, in a similar way to you, Shay, with, you know, getting into training and kind of that high school, college type time, um, getting into weightlifting and then gradually kind of getting more and more into the fitness side of things. And then, you know, bodybuilding and things like that. So that interest grew from there in terms of nutrition. Um, And really the study kind of came from that. It was like I finished college. I'd been training at the gym for a while. I was interested in those things. And I was like, you know, I got into university. I think I was doing a Bachelor of Arts. (laughs) And I was like, oh man, like, I don't even know what this really means um, or what I'm going to do with this. So like, I don't even really want to be studying for the next few years, but I feel like that's what I need to do. Um, so I kind of thought, well, what could I enjoy? And so I ended up doing a bachelor of, uh, coaching science, coaching and exercise science. So I battled my way through that for three years, not really being that driven, uh, expected to come out and be, you know, like a strength conditioning coach for professional (laughs) football teams and working with high class athletes. Um, and as anyone knows, like, you know, when you come out of uni and you're expecting those kind of things, and then you get into the real life job force, um, it doesn't go that smoothly. So a lot of the jobs you were looking at were basically volunteer. They usually required you to move to Sydney or something like that. So I actually spent probably, I don't know, the next four or so years, just personal training, um, in a gym. And during that time, still kind of interested in nutrition. I think that's when I did my first bodybuilding show. Um, And after that, started getting interest in coaching, like other people getting coached by me and things like that. Um, And I decided to go back to university, which is actually when I did my um, 
postgraduate diploma in human nutrition through Deakin Uni, um, which allowed me to become a registered nutritionist. Um, and then I basically from there, I started working at the Healthy Eating Hub uh, in Canberra, which is kind of like dietitians and nutritionists um, working together with clients as consultants. So just working one-on-one -on -one with people, having consultations. Um, and I worked there for three years while gradually, I guess, working a little bit with people one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and then it came to a point where I wanted to go out on my own and build, continue building my own business. I wasn't able to do that as well as working um, at the Healthy Eating Hub. And then this opportunity or where I've been for the last, what, 18 months now kind of came up where basically we, myself and my wife, um, now wife Ash, had the opportunity to move to the UK. You like saying uh, that? Travel. Pardon? <laughs> Do you like saying my wife now? <laughs> yes. Yeah. It was a little <laughs> bit weird. Um, I haven't had a chance to say it that much because realistically, like <laughs> the last years, we haven't been um, interacting, with, well, interacting with people. That sounds bad. Catching <laughs> <laughs> up with friends as much. Um, so, yeah, we basically packed up our life um, moved to the UK. We're living just outside London for about the first 12 months, um, building our own businesses. So working from home, traveling, that kind of thing. Um, and then this year we started our grand world tour. Um, we moved to Scotland and we were there for two months. Um, absolutely loved it. We're living in Edinburgh, um, got married in the Highlands there. And then we moved to Copenhagen, um, which is like, We've only been there for maybe a week, but it's easily one of our favourite places um, we've ever been. And that's when kind of like COVID hit and uh, dashed all our dreams. I think yeah, the I lucky the cool thing being in that situation for you guys is obviously you've been travelling already. And so you'd had already moved, I guess, a large chunk of your business model online. So yeah. I assume there probably wasn't much of a transition period. But did you feel like there was, like, did you have to do anything additional to make that business model work? Not really. It was a pretty smooth transition. I think the biggest transition was actually going from like a part-time kind of job, where it's kind of like a side gig mm. going, okay, I need to go all in on this, um, which was like pretty scary. <laughs> Realistically, like starting out, I was like, man, like, I don't know, like I could be back in Australia in three to six months broke um, if this doesn't work out. So um, the biggest change was just yeah making it a full-time job rather than a part-time side gig and I think that's probably one of like the things that I've been happiest with these past 18 months is actually like I guess with anyone like when you invest in yourself and go all in on something and it actually comes to fruition and I think had COVID not been a thing you know like we would still be like I think at the moment we'd probably be in Portugal or something like that that's where mm -hmm. we booked up to like middle of the year um, so just the the fact that we were able to have this kind of, I don't want to call it a dream, but like this goal of, you know, like spending a year traveling, um, being able to work and kind of fund our own travel. Um, and that actually, you know, came about, that was a true thing. We kind of took a gamble and it ended up working out. And I think most of that was just, I mean, obviously we had some good um, luck on our side and we had people to support us, but a lot of it also just kind of coming from putting putting the work in and trusting kind of in ourselves. Yeah. And so you're currently in Sydney now after yeah, landing day, back day. here and you're in day eight of quarantine. That is correct. How's it going? Uh, so it's been ups and downs. I think for the majority of the time it hasn't been too bad. 
I think luckily, one, there's two of us here. I imagine if you are on your own, it would probably be a lot harder. Um, I'd probably be talking or calling a lot more people. Um, and two, we both, like, because we do work from online, we can at least still have some kind of uh, routine to the day, like we get some work done. Um, there is a big screen TV in here, and we actually have a Nintendo Switch with, like, the Ring Fit game on it. So uh, we tend to kind of try and get, you know, at least half an hour to 40 minutes of, like, fun, active game time in each day, which I actually think makes a massive difference as well. So just kind of, like, having some routine things there. Um, but, yeah, it's definitely also not been, not been super easy just not being able to leave a room, having all your food dictated, even though we can get Uber Eats and stuff like that, um, and not having fresh air. Yeah, no doubt. And I imagine as well, because you obviously work with nutrition, it's probably, and you don't have a choice of the food you have at the moment. I mean, yeah, it's, I would say if this was a couple of years ago, it would have been a lot harder mm. <laughs> just because I feel like probably in the last like couple of years, I've been a lot better with being able to accept not being in complete control when it comes to kind of nutrition and being able to, you know, understand that these short time periods aren't going to mean that I blow out. In saying that as well, I think there are always things that you can do that's within your power to make things like slightly better than what they are. You know what I mean? So um, we don't have a kitchen or anything like that, but basically like we could buy some stuff from Woolworths so we could get like some non-perishable items that, you know, were a little bit higher in protein um, and those kind of things uh, just to try and help, I guess, move in the right direction, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And how do you think then, you just touched on this before, but when you said a few years ago, you'd probably feel a lot differently to this time period as you do now, what has changed over that time period, do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. I think kind of harping back to, you know, obviously having that bodybuilding or physique sport background and the journey that you come on with nutrition and your mindset and your knowledge, I think it's probably been the last few years that I've been able to really understand, I guess, just how much of my results can be maintained or achieved with like as much flexibility as possible and without having to worry about the minor details. So like, I think when you first get interested in nutrition, you kind of go on this journey where you find out something and you start implementing that. And then like you go down this rabbit hole and you just start adding more and more things to what you're doing, you know, like you find out about whether it's calories or whatever. And so you start tracking that and then you start, you find out about protein and macros and you start adding that. And then you just keep adding things that you're focusing on and you get like so caught up in it and, you know, overwhelmed and stuff like that, that you're micromanaging everything. And I think sometimes people never really get beyond that point, but I think at some point you start realizing, like you start going, you know, I can't be like screwed to do some of these things anymore. And once you do the research as well, you're like, well, maybe I don't have to do this. And so I think part of that journey is actually then cutting away this stuff and realizing, you know, I can get, like I've been saying, 90% or more of my results from doing a lot less. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Nutrition um, is so definitely that, one of those topics where there's obviously a lot of information on the internet about it and a lot of misinformation too, which is definitely hard to navigate when you're someone who is just on the internet looking for any old information and trying to implement some of those things to reach a lot of different goals that fit into the nutrition bubble. 
One thing that I love that you do is you speak about high return on investment factors when it comes to nutrition. So if you just want to have a bit of a chat about that and what that actually means. Yeah, absolutely. So I think you touched on it like perfectly just then is that, I mean, the internet is like a blessing and a curse. I would honestly say that like the internet has probably provided, you know, ton of my education over the kind of years but like you also said is that we have so much information but what we don't have or what the majority of people don't have unless you have a background in science and a good understanding of research is the ability to be able to kind of sort through what's actually good information and what's garbage basically and so then what happens is because we've got so much information and we don't have the ability to sort through it it becomes so confusing because we have so many things that we are told that we should be doing often that, you know, contrasting and conflicting each other, um, that we become paralyzed <laughs> and we're not sure what we should be doing. So we end up jumping from thing to thing um, and then gradually getting more and more frustrated until eventually we say, well, screw it. And kind of, you know, we, we stop caring basically, or we have this kind of situation where we don't know how to prioritize all these different factors. And I think that's the thing is that, Obviously, there are a lot of things that we can do with our nutrition to try and move towards our goals. Um, but all of those things aren't created equal. Some things are obviously going to have a much larger effect than others. Um, and some things aren't going to be worth investing in at all. So you might have someone who is drinking five cups of green tea per day, but you know they're struggling to eat a vegetable and things like that because they, they don't understand that some things are going to have a larger return on their investments basically so that's where that kind of high return on investment nutrition came about is that basically it's understanding where we should be investing our efforts to get the largest possible return or our um, results and so going through this and looking at the research um, talking to other kind of nutrition researchers and stuff like that basically I think for the majority of people who aren't like elite level athletes um, who are just kind of, you know, trying to get generally pretty decent goals, uh, look good, feel good, get stronger, all those kind of things that they can probably achieve, you know, 90 or percent of those results that they're looking for by focusing on a much smaller amount of things than they probably are. And by doing that, by investing their efforts into what I call the high ROI factors, um, one you know, like they, they're giving themselves more time because they're not trying to spread themselves too thin so they can invest more in those factors, which means that they can usually be a bit more consistent, that adherence is a little bit easier. And when you kind of get those two things in line, results tend to also um, grow as well. So what are those factors? What would you consider those high ROI factors? Yeah, cool. So I guess basically, and I think this ties into kind of, I guess, how they came about. Uh, but the high ROI factors that, at least in my opinion, based on the research, is that we can't really uh, argue, depend, regardless of the method that someone chooses, um, is that we should be all eating mostly uh, whole foods or nutrient-dense whole foods. I think regardless of the diet you follow, most diets are going to argue that that's the case. Uh, we should also be eating enough calories for our goals. So that's not too few, but it's also not too many. So obviously energy balance calories are important. So if we think about those two, that's basically the quality of the food you're eating and the quantity. And then the final one that I would say comes down to uh, protein intake. So eating sufficient amounts of protein. Uh, and 
we can go into more detail about why protein um, is important. But those are the three big high ROI factors. And basically, in my experience, I've found that if people are consistently eating the right amount of calories coming from mostly whole foods and they're eating sufficient amounts of protein and they're doing that on a consistent basis, they're generally going to be moving forward towards their goals. And I think a lot of the time people are like, well, that sounds too simple. Like it can't be that simple. And the reality is it is that simple. It's the problem is, is that it's hard to consistently do that. So I guess my role as a coach and probably you've kind of understood this as well is it is that simple, but it's being able to design a diet or a lifestyle that allows people to do those things consistently. That's the hard part because we live in an environment that basically pushes us in the opposite direction that wants us to eat processed foods that are hyper palatable and delicious, um, not move much. Um, you know, processed foods tend to be lower in protein um, and they also tend to be calorie dense. So all those foods that kind of our environment is pushing us towards is essentially the opposite of what we want to be uh, doing most of the time. Yeah. And you usually preach, I know you've just said then like mostly whole foods. I just want to make clear that I don't like, you're not saying don't eat these processed foods or these hyper palatable foods. Yeah. It's more about balancing that, adding those things in, but not your whole diet should not be consisting of those high palatable processed foods. Is that what, is that where you kind of come from? Yeah. I think the mostly is a really important part in that statement. Um, and basically because we see when anyone tries to go 100%, you know, clean or hundred percent kind of, you know, whole foods type diet at some point that's going to break, going to break down and it tends to lead to kind of disordered thinking patterns around food. It tends to kind of go coincide with kind of this viewpoint of good and bad foods, mm. um, which again is kind of like a disordered um, pattern of eating and i guess the problem with that is when you have these kind of black and white viewpoints on nutrition of being you know uh clean or dirty or good and bad is that as soon as you eat something that you consider to be bad or dirty you're going to have this flip kind of or switch in your head that gets flipped where you feel like you've messed up that you've failed your diet that you're bad and typically when we see that happen people tend to fall into disinhibited or lapses in their diet where they think, well, I've, you know, fucked up my diet now. I may as well make the most of this or I may as well, you know, continue on down this road and I'll start again on Monday. And this is actually super, super prevalent. I would say it's easily one of the biggest things that I work with with clients is them coming on and thinking that they do have to be 100% and beating themselves up when they don't stick to their plan. And I guess the thing that I try to get across to them is that it's not necessarily the bad food that they're eating that's causing the problem. It's their reaction to eating that bad food. Mm. So when you have such a rigid approach such that you've got strict rules and you break those rules, it's actually the feeling that you've um, broken the rules that you've eaten in a way that doesn't align with your goals that then causes the negative feelings that make you I guess, go into a disinhibited pattern or then snowball into multiple bad decisions and I guess cause more, I don't want to say damage, but it kind of set yourself back a little bit more than it would if you just had that nice meal and then got on with your diet normally. Yeah. If that makes sense. I think that happens too when people 
are on a really strict, strict diet. And so I liked how before you mentioned that there's lots of different methods and there's lots of different diets. And so there's things like, you know, paleo, keto, et cetera. And I definitely yep. feel like that's a pattern when people are following obviously a really rigid diet. And then they do have that, that one thing, that one meal. And it's obviously just a flow on effect to everything else now and breaking that diet or that phase. What are some of the things that you find when people come to you with different methods and the different diets? I know you mentioned before, it's like more about looking about them as a whole and what they're doing. And you often find that most of them, if they are successful, regardless of the method, you said, you know, more of the whole foods and the calorie deficit over a long period of time. But how do you navigate that as someone who is on the internet? How do you navigate all those different diets and what people preach because it does ebb and flow. Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. Uh, I think it's probably a pretty deep answer, but I guess you kind of touched on it there is that we do have all these different dietary uh, tribes or methods. And I think one of the key things, and this I guess comes with uh, knowledge to a certain extent in any area is kind of like being able to understand the principles of something rather than the methods. And so I guess an easy way to kind of look at this is if we have all these dietary different diet methods or diet tribes, like you're saying, like keto, paleo, um, vegan, all these kind of things that have these different ways of eating. And I think what we see at the moment is a lot of argument about what is optimal and what's the best way to kind of diet. Um, and I can't like say this being outside of it because this is what I used to do like years ago is that I spent so much time looking for this optimal diet. You know, what was the best macro split? Should I be low carb? Should I be high carb? Uh, how much fat should I be having? And things like that. We see all these arguments on the internet about what's best, but I think that's a little bit, I guess, backwards in the way that it's kind of thought about because realistically, like, I mean, we probably all know people who follow these different diets. And if you go online, like they all have massive followings, go on like, I don't know, Instagram or Facebook and things like that. And within each of these dietary tribes, you're going to find people that are thriving, that are healthy, that are you know, a healthy body weight, that are strong, that are lean, whatever your goal is, you're going to find someone in that dietary tribe that is achieving their goals and is healthy. And so I think that in addition to the fact where if we look at like if we think of it from an evolutionary term or an evolutionary kind of um, viewpoint that like humans have evolved as omnivores and it doesn't make sense that there would have been one optimal diet that everyone all over the planet was following at any one time. Like that's just never going to happen. So I think the key thing we should be looking for is like, okay, well, what are the common kind of features that we see between diets um, that we can definitely agree upon that are going to be, you know, important factors. And that's essentially where the high return on investment um, nutrition kind of comes from is that regardless of those dietary methods that you're choosing, each one of them, first of all, like if you're reading, like um, you see this a lot with like carnivore or with vegan, usually they're going to say a well-constructed carnivore vegan diet, it will meet your nutrient needs and stuff like that. And it's that well-constructed part that I think is really important because realistically, any diet you follow, you're probably going to have to think about if you want it to be good, at least initially, you're going to have to have some awareness of the nutrients that you're eating and what you want to be eating. So well-constructed is a coverall for everything. But after that, it's again, coming down to those three factors. All of them are going to promote whole foods, mostly. Um, all of them are going to, 
you know, make sure that or promote adequate amounts of protein. And all of them are going to help you regulate your calorie intake. And that's how they're going to achieve their goals, basically. Regardless of the method, those are the dietary principles underlying all of the methods that are going to be driving those results. And so really, realistically, the methods come down to helping people adhere. So what method is going to help you consistently adhere to those dietary principles? But when you understand the dietary principles, the magic of that is that realistically, you can create your own method. You don't have to follow what someone else is doing. You can go, what is going to be the easiest way for me to hit those dietary principles? What's going to be the easiest way for me to regulate my calories, eat enough calories, get enough protein and get it from mostly whole foods? And that can be like none of those. It could be a mixture of those methods. It's whatever is going to be easiest for you. And when people grasp that and start to understand it, it becomes so much easier for them to actually consistently do it because they can go, okay, well, what is my lifestyle going to look like that's going to allow me to do these things? You know, like if you're someone that goes away on work trips every like once a month for a weekend, you can go, well, maybe I will be in a calorie deficit if you're trying to lose um, weight for three weeks. And maybe on that fourth week, I'll take it as a maintenance week. So I'm not trying to diet while I'm away on a work trip. Um, or like with um, women specifically, it can be the same with like their cycle. Um, if you're super hungry and, you know, like struggling to stick to your diet on that kind of one week when you're, um, during that kind of time, you can have a break during that week, eat a little bit more and then create that deficit over the next three weeks. And because you're allowing yourself to do that and it's part of the plan, you don't feel like you're fucking up. So you don't have that disinhibited eating and overall consistency and adherence is better. I kind of went down a rabbit hole there. Sorry, but you get what I mean. It's great. I think what I fully agree with what you're saying. And I think we've all been in that space. The hard thing is you saying, okay, let's focus on the, the whole foods and, you know, creating a calorie deficit and creating your own method. It sound it does sound too simple and it doesn't sound as great as when someone's like, I just lost 20 kilos off the keto diet, which is often what we see on the internet and what grabs people's attention. And then what creates that ebb and flow between diet to another diet to another diet and constantly going back and forth between these different methods. I guess just understanding like what I was um, saying about the different dietary tribes. And I think it's to a certain extent, it's kind of like critical thinking and being able to like question those kind of claims when they're made about, you know, losing this amount of weight in that kind of time frame and stuff like that. Um, but it is always going to be hard without having a deep understanding of the science to be able to break through and kind of, you know, question those claims. And I mean, like, I think what we need to remember as well is that like behind all these claims, like there's, you know, marketing teams and stuff mm -hmm. like that. They know how to push our buttons to the extent where like, I'm someone who's done a lot of study, but you know, like there are times when I'll see something and I'll be like, Oh, like that's, that's pretty interesting. And there's still that kind of like flicker of a moment where I'm like, you know, like I'm kind of like, is there a shorter way? Like, is this, you know, a, a quicker way for me to get towards my goals before like that logical brain kind of steps in and it's like, hang on, like, let's look into this and kind of see. And then like, again, it comes back to understanding. It's like, well, does this somehow get around to those dietary principles? Um, and having that knowledge in the background allows me to be like, well, I know that it basically can't, like it's going to come down to these things one way or another. That method is just going to be manipulating them in some, you know, new way, so to speak. Yeah. And also people are often selling things online. And I think we forget mm -hmm. that as well. 
is that often when we see these big claims, they are either selling you a program or selling you a supplement, something attached to that, which makes that obviously that marketing much stronger because they have uh, something behind it that makes them want to provide that marketing in the first place. Yeah, 100%. I think that's probably what drives the most of it. I mean, like in our society at the moment, you know, like rarely you're going to get something for free. Like when something seems too good to be true, like it, it generally is. And so a lot of these times when there are these bold claims and things seem too good to be true, you know, like losing this amount of weight in this shorter time, there's going to be some kind of catch, whether that is, you know, like supplements or a specific program. And a lot of the time it's that they're creating problems and then providing the solution. I mean, that's kind mm -hmm. of like, you know, marketing uh, 101 is being able to, you know, like solve a problem and provide a solution. I think now it's just a lot more aggressive, especially within the nutrition and dietary place um, space is that they're kind of, I guess, convincing people that maybe they have problems that they don't have to stop, solve that solution. And I think like with weight loss, obviously it's kind of like, it's already hard. Like we know that like sustaining weight loss is really, really hard. So this promise of making it easier and quicker is always going to be alluring to the people. It's always something that people are going to look towards. Um, and I think that's actually a big part of the problem. I think if you do want to kind of lose weight and sustain it long-term, you do kind of have to try and move away from that shortcut mentality because that's always going to lead you um, astray. And a part of a big part of that is what I say is that like, honestly, like that journey, you can't really shortcut it because a lot of the things that happen and the barriers that come up and the challenges that you face during this kind of battle is actually what helps you sustain it once you get to the end point. It's just that a lot of people don't end up making it to that point. Yeah, definitely tough to keep up with a weight loss if it is something you view as a shortcut in your life. Yeah. I just want to touch on moving on from that. I just want to touch on stress and how that impacts our body and also how that impacts uh, weight loss as well. I guess what's interesting about stress and nutrition in particular is that like the textbook response, like if you look up stress, like and nutrition is that like we actually see a reduction in appetite from the stress response. So we see, you know, blood move away from the stomach um, and a lot of like our systems within our bodies are actually um, like inhibited in order to be able to kind of, you know, fight or flight as they say. But when we survey people like more recently, we see that like 45% of people, I think it is actually end up eating more when they're stressed, which I think probably in my experience tends to sound uh, more in line with what I see is that when people are in stressful periods, they turn to food. Um, so I guess how this affects body composition or fat loss and things like that really i think comes down to a few kind of key ways one is that it affects our eating behavior and i think this is probably the larger problem and that's kind of like what i said is that when we're stressed we tend to kind of move towards energy dense foods um, which obviously makes it harder to stick to our calorie goals or the amount of calories that we're trying to eat and i think a large part of that is probably a learned response. So something somewhat similar to um, cravings is that basically during our lifetime, I guess like since we've been kids, a lot of people aren't really like, it's not taught how to manage stress effectively. Mm -hmm. Like it's not something that you're taught at school or by your parents. Um, same with actually like with eating generally, like we're not really taught that either. So we, we form all these kind of 
habits, patterns, disordered ways of coping with things. Um, and I think that food is one of those things that we use for, as a coping mechanism for a lot of different uh, discomfort, basically, in our life, whether that's, you know, emotions, whether that's stress, um, whatever it is, we tend to turn to food as a coping mechanism. And one of the things that I guess reinforces this is that energy dense foods such as chocolate or pizza or whatever your go-to comfort food is that you reach to when you're stressed, they tend to be highly rewarding. And what I mean by that is that when you eat those foods, we see kind of like a spike of dopamine in the brain and dopamine acts as a bit of like a learning, I guess, uh, neurotransmitter or a reinforcing transmitter, basically meaning that whatever we do that causes that spike in dopamine dopamine makes it more likely that we're going to do it again in the future. So it's kind of teaching us as going, okay, well, this was rewarding. This was aligns with what we want in life. Um, so let's do it again in the future. And the way that it makes us do that is that it creates these associations with whatever was happening in the environment around us at that time. So if we're stressed and then we eat this food and we get this rewarding response, our brain is then going to form a connection with that food so that the next time we feel stressed or not comfortable, it goes, let's eat this food. Like that's what we do in this situation. So we form these connections from a young age and then they're reinforced basically over a lifetime of when I feel this way, I eat this food and they form really strong connections. So that's kind of one of them is that, we have these strong connections. When we feel stressed, we reach for these foods. And obviously that means that we struggle to regulate our calories. Um, the second thing is obviously, I guess, not necessarily stopping fat loss, but I think it can kind of harm long-term sustainability. And that's stress's effect in terms of water retention in the mm -hmm. body. So something that I probably notice quite a bit, probably a little bit more with females than males, I think that could be for a number of reasons, but basically when you're dieting or when you're, we'll start with when you're stressed, we see an increase in cortisol. That's what everyone associates with stress. And cortisol is produced by our adrenal glands, which sit atop our kidneys. And another hormone that's produced there is aldosterone. And that has to do with fluid balance in the body. And when we see high levels of cortisol in the body, we can see some kind of cross reactivity with the aldosterone receptors, which basically just means that court high levels of cortisol can lead to some water retention in the body. So a typical scenario that we might see is we've got someone who's trying to lose weight, who's dieting, which is already adding stress to the body. Then maybe they have a stressful week at work or, you know, they've got all these other stresses in their life. So we see that happening. They're stepping on the scale perhaps, and they're not seeing the scale number reflect the effort that they feel that they're putting in. So they're kind of freaking out about that. So we see stress go up, cortisol increase even more. And then potentially what we're seeing is that the body is holding onto a little bit of water, which again, exacerbates that scale, not moving. And even then we might actually like, if you are still sticking to that calorie amount, you could be seeing fat loss going on. Well, you might not be seeing it, but it could be happening in the background, but because you're holding onto water, you're not seeing that um, reflected on the scale, which causes you to get more frustrated and then eventually you either fall into like uh disinhibited eating so you end up you know binging or eating kind of foods because you're so frustrated and stressed or you end up giving up and saying like screw this like why am i even doing this um and so that's the kind of other thing is we have obviously stress in the short term tends to cause us to reach for comfort foods which tend to make it hard to regulate our calorie intake 
And over the long term, we can see stress masking fat loss, um, which makes it frustrating and tends to lead us again to disinhibited eating. Um, does that kind of answer what you were Yeah, absolutely. For? And I think it's hard because stress comes from so many different things going on in our life, like work, relationships, all of it. And it's crazy to think how much of an impact it does have on our body. And especially if you're, if you are in a fat loss phase, I've seen with some of my clients and even with myself, sometimes if I have a stressful week and I am in say like a dieting phase, which I haven't done for a very long time, but seeing my, the scale not move. And then literally the week after seeing actually quite a big drop, and mm. it often, I imagine, comes down to that water retention. Yeah, 100%. Um, and like, I mean, I've seen this personally. And if you talk to pretty much any coach out there, they'll, they'll kind of say that they've seen similar things like that. And I mean, like a really good example, actually, this was when I was still at the Healthy Eating Hub. I had a client there, a female. I think she just had her second uh, baby and she had another young one. And she was basically super stressed out, wasn't like getting hardly any sleep. And like she'd come to see me, we were kind of trying to like lose a little bit of kind of the excess weight. Um, and she was getting frustrated by the results. And then the next time I saw her, maybe two weeks later, she was looking so much like not physically, but like in her face, like so much better and like so much more energetic. And she was like, oh, like it just got too much. And she went to like, I think it was like the sleep clinic. I can't remember what they call it in Canberra, but basically like they look after your kids and allow you to get some sleep. And so I think she was there for a couple of nights, like got some sleep, was way less stressed and literally like over the course of a day or two, like dropped like all this kind of weight. Um, and it was pretty much just from kind of that, you know, reduction in stress and actually getting some sleep. And I guess that's something that I didn't touch on was that obviously when you're stressed, typically poor sleep also follows with that um, is that we're, you know, maybe a little bit more anxious. We're not getting the same amount of sleep or the same quality, which in and of itself tends to lead to poor nutrition decisions and tends to, again, push us towards those uh, calorie dense, hyper palatable foods. So yeah, um, I would say that's a really big one. And a lot of my, like a lot of the time as I'm coaching someone and we're going through this period, because as you said, like, 90% of the people I work with are stressed, <laughs> you know, like majority of the time, you know, I ask them, you know, how are your stress levels this week? And most of the time they're going to be above five out of 10. Um, so a lot of the time, and especially with females, it's going, okay, like we just need to be patient. Like let's work on trying to manage stress um, and reduce it where we can um, and just keep, you know, focusing on what's within your control when it comes mm -hmm. to nutrition. And we will see, the scale kind of reflect what's going on. We just got to be patient. Yeah. I imagine that's been hard though throughout the last couple of months because of coronavirus and everyone is stressed at the moment. I'm not sure I've spoken to someone and been like, Hey, how are you? And they'd be like, I'm fucking great. You know what I mean? A lot of people <laughs> are pretty stressed at the moment trying to, trying to, I guess people don't really know like what is going to happen for the next few months as well and how that's going to look and how life is going to look. And often, especially some of my clients that I work with, these, I work with the majority of females and some of these women have kids. And so their stress levels are high thinking about what it means for their children as well. And for their family, just touching on women and why you think they are more stressed. Do you, what kind of factors do you think play into that? Why do you find it's more common with women? I guess part of it is probably just like as society i think there's probably more responsibilities <laughs> on adult women to be honest 
um, not all the time, but a lot of the time, like if they do have kids, if they do have family, like I think it's still in the majority of cases, uh, the women are doing more of the kind of, you know, work and day-to-day things. And, you know, the, I, I don't want to like <laughs> say anything inflammatory out there, but I think that's kind of the case is that most of the time, at least with my female clients, they probably do have more on their plate. Um, when it comes to kind of overall life responsibilities and stress, they are the ones that are usually, you know, if they're a family cooking dinners majority of the time that are doing the shopping, uh, that are worried about, you know, cleaning or whatever other kind of things are going on as well as career work relationships, all those kind of things. Um, I also do feel, and I'm not a hundred percent sure I can't say I've like looked into the research on this, but there is probably slightly more, I don't know how to say it, kind of like trait level stress and anxiety uh, with women. I think maybe it's just kind of like <laughs> um, a little bit more going on in the head 24 seven than with men. Um, and this is kind of like personal reflection with myself um, and my wife as well, obviously. <laughs> but a lot of the time, like I'm kind of just like happy go lucky. And you know, like Ash is kind of like, what are you thinking about right now? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> and then like you know like her head's always going 24 7 i think that's fairly common is that like i think they often females do tend to kind of worry more and think more about the future and things like that so there's always these kind of things going on whereas i think men tend to be kind of you know like maybe a little bit more like just focusing or like worried about the moment kind of thing that mm-hmm. might be quite broad like i said but uh from personal experience i think that's kind of what i've noticed Yeah, I think there are many different factors that play into women's stress. And uh, I mean, you can add anxiety in here. I'm obviously not, I don't work in mental health and I'd love to get someone on who works with women in a mental health capacity. But I do find a lot of women do carry more stress day to day. Their cortisol levels are much higher. And when we look at that paired with nutrition, and we've spoken about this before, is women typically lose fat at a lot, like at a slower rate than what males do. And I'm sure that plays into it, but what is the kind of realistic rate of fat loss for women compared to men? Yeah, cool. Good question. I also think like kind of tying it back into, sorry, uh, just what you were talking about. I think it connects it quite well. Um, Probably is whether it's real or perceived, I would say it's probably a mixture of both. Um, like that societal pressure in terms of body image. And I think like we know that when we look at body image issues, um, it tends to be more females than males. I know definitely the amount of men with body image issues is growing, but it's still way outshadowed by women. Um, And I think obviously that comes down to, you know, long uh, winded kind of societal type things and cultural things. But that obviously then plays a part to stress as well as stressing about why, they should be looking a certain way and things like that, which adds to it. Whereas I think with men, there's probably not as much societal pressure to fit into that kind of, you know, how, how we should look and things like that. Mm. Um, Just jumping in quickly to touch on that. How do you navigate that in your profession? Because I do imagine it's quite hard to not play into that diet culture while still if someone comes to you and they do want to diet or do want to go through a period of fat loss, how do you manage both of those things without, I guess, playing into the, the fact that women do have that pressure to look a certain way? 
Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> it's really hard. And I think this is probably an area that for myself, I've probably been trying to look into a bit further because I think it's definitely something that's coming to light a lot more at the moment. Um, I think part of it is obviously trying to like help, obviously helping women with nutrition, but at the same time trying to kind of, I guess, understand the why, but also getting them to kind of have a think about those things. Um, and probably more so depending on the individual and how I think like where they're at also, I guess changing the focus points a little bit as well about like, you know, reframing what we're focusing on and what we're looking at um, and trying to be positive with that. So maybe it is taking kind of like, you know, the scale number off its pedestal and trying to kind of work towards other things. And I think that's really important to kind of remember and know as well is that pretty much a hundred percent of the time, unless you're a weight class based athlete, like the number that people state, like that's never really the true goal. The true goal is always going to be a feeling. They want to feel a certain way. Um, and so it's obviously understanding then, you know, that that's not necessarily directly related to the number on the scale. And I think that's a mistake that a lot of us kind of make is thinking that body image is perfectly correlated with the number on the scale. But as we lose more and more weight, we're going to become happier and happier with how we, we look. But it doesn't work that way. Um, so, yeah, I think trying to... Uh, put less focus on scale weight um, and, you know, body fat percentages and stuff like that. Um, also having more realistic expectations. So again, I think, you know, in the media, in magazines with the biggest loser, um, and I'll probably touch on this when we go back to rate of fat loss is that these things often end up setting up unrealistic expectations. And so a lot of the time when females come to me, a lot of it is also just about going, okay, well, like, we need to look at like one, why you want to achieve this, like delving into that deep why and the feelings that they want to feel and kind of trying to help them understand that it might not necessarily like getting to a certain weight might not be exactly the reason why they want to do like why they should be doing that. But also having realistic expectations are going, you're like, you know what, like the healthy body fat range for a female really like is so it's like pretty broad realistically and like, doesn't have to be super low. In fact, if you try to go too low, you're going to struggle. Life isn't going to be very fun and you're probably going to feel like crap. Mm. Um, and kind of getting that across because I don't actually think that a lot of women know what that healthy body fat range is and what it looks like. And also helping people to understand that like um, your genetics are going to have a, a big role in that. So like there's some things that you're never going to be able to change, much like your height, or your eye color and things like that. Like you're kind of dealt the hand that you're dealt and you can choose how you play that and you can improve it. But there are some things that are never going to change. So like for myself, as an example, when I was younger, you would look on Instagram or at that time it was, you know, like YouTube and you'd be watching like um, certain bodybuilders or whatever it was. And, you know, like you'd be like, Oh man, like I want to look like that. And it's like, if I can get to that body fat percentage and lift weights, I'm going to look like this person. Mm. And then like, even like, I mean, I got to that body fat percentage and I didn't look like that person because obviously my structure was completely different. So understanding that, you know, like just because you might get to like a lower body fat percentage doesn't mean like you're going to look exactly like someone else and being comfortable with that, I guess. Yeah. I love how you touched on we're often chasing a feeling and sometimes mm. we have that 
a little bit confused because I'll use myself as an example. When I was doing my bodybuilding comp, I thought, yeah, great. If I get to the stage, I'm going to feel so good about myself. I'm going to look at myself in the mirror and be like, hell yeah, kind of thing. And I felt so bad. I was cold all the time, no sex drive. I felt very weak in training. I was tired all the time. I was like a bit like a zombie. It was the opposite of what I had convinced myself of what I was going to feel like getting to that weight. Yeah, 100%. And I think it is important to understand that. And I think like, I mean, it's so deeply rooted in kind of like our culture and society that like we, we should look a certain way and that that's going to answer all our questions, that it is really hard to kind of get out of that mindset and get away from it. And like, I mean, similar to you, like that's, you know, something that I've had to face and work on myself. It's probably something still that, you know, like you still have days when you kind of have to face those kind of things. Um, but it is understanding, okay, well, like I want to, you know, like understanding what you want from kind of your life and how you want to feel, but then also understanding that that's not necessarily uh, dictated by kind of the way that you look or being a certain, you know, low body fat percentage and things like that. Um, and I think, I guess one of the things that I think we should probably be looking at and might be getting a little bit better is obviously having this goal of being able to, you know, like be energetic and be strong, but also being capable of doing whatever we want to do. I feel like we shouldn't be limited in what we should be able to do. So getting to a point where like, if you want to do some workout or hike something or do something else that you are able to do that, in that kind of sense, because I feel like that's probably better than thinking that you have to diet down to a low body fat percentage when, as you perfectly described and like, it was exactly the same when I got down to really low body fat percentages. Like you look in the mirror and you might like feel good <laughs> for a short period of time, but for like, you know, the 23 and a half other hours of the day, you feel like complete garbage. Um, so yeah. Yeah. And what are some other, I know I'm just jumping back quickly, but if someone is going through a fat loss phase and say they are attached to the scale and they might want to move away from it for the time being, what are some other things that they can focus on to give them a good indication that they're heading in the right direction with their fat loss goals? Yeah. I mean, I think in that scenario, we're still looking at kind of like habits and consistency. So it's kind of like, you know, like obviously focusing on nutrient density, like are we eating kind of the right foods? And typically like if the quality of your food is up there and you're eating that, you know, 80 to 90% of the time, we generally know that your, your calories aren't going to go off like too far. Um, but also performance, I think that's a really big one. Um, and this is something that I probably use transitioning out of a fat loss phase, but it probably works just the same for someone like that is shifting that focus away from, uh, aesthetics and away from kind of body image towards a more performance and how someone feels. So tracking that, you know, are we getting stronger? Um, things like that. I mean, you can use clothes fit and things like that, like how are clothes fitting and things like that. But I think if, it, if it's someone that's like, you know, worried about how they are kind of seeing themselves, obviously one like referring out, if it needs to come to that mm -hmm. point, like you said, like referring to um, someone that does have a, degree in that kind of, you know, psychological body image type area. Um, but also just taking that focus kind of completely away from it and going, you know, like let's focus on food choices, on healthy habits and on performance and that kind of thing. And just knowing, I guess, that if you're following through the process, then, you know, 
body related things are probably going to follow in line with that as well. Yeah. I think you've just said something really important about referring out. And I think for a lot of people and if anyone's listening and they are struggling with something, say uh, like somewhere in the realm of an eating disorder, let's just say binge eating, for example, the person you see on Instagram who is selling a diet probably isn't going to be actually not probably definitely isn't going to be the right decision. If that is something you're struggling with at this point in time, I think it's worth mentioning to go see someone else who works in that area um, as opposed to looking to say like the, the Fitspo on Instagram who is selling you an eight week challenge because it is something that needs attention outside of social media as much as like as coaches we want to kind of be this you know master of all and kind of mm-hmm. cover all bases and you know try and help people and not do it i think at the end of the day like you do need to refer out and like it's such a broad area of like kind of you know discussion and i think it's so individual getting on top of that is probably going to be like so much more impactful than you doing <laughs> any kind of eight week challenge you're going to take so much more from kind of getting I guess your head right around that area rather than probably hearing the exact same things that you've heard before when you've done other challenges or things like that. Like that's not the problem. Your problem isn't willpower or discipline or anything like that. It's um, something else. Yeah. Obviously that pressure as well for coaches at the moment to be a master of all is quite high at the moment because it is so saturated. But at the end of the day, I actually spoke about this in an Instagram post. I think it was a few weeks ago. You are doing your clients a disservice, which is the opposite of what you have probably set your intentions to be. But if you don't work in that like particular area, there is someone who does, who has a wealth of knowledge, who could help your clients so much more than what you could with, you know, dribs and drabs of information that you've pulled from somewhere. Yeah. I think this is something that I'm definitely um, trying to better establish in my business at the moment, but also I think it's something that probably more people need to be doing is actually looking at it, like forming those connections with other professionals. Um, So like, I think it's pretty, it's an easy connection, obviously like with say like an online nutritionist and perhaps like a strength coach. Like there's a lot of times that I've had clients with that, um, you know, with yourself and with other kind of strength coaches where it's like, okay, well like they're taking like taking care of the training side of things Um, but I think other areas aren't so much. And I think part of it is probably because, and like, I'm not calling out online coaches or anything like that. I think part of it is obviously, um, because (laughs) (laughs) online coaches, if they don't have, if they aren't registered with a, like with a body or they don't have a formal education background, not that there aren't good coaches out there that um, haven't done those things. But I think a lot of the time, like, if they're trying to connect to a, like say with a doctor, I think that's obviously like another connection that's probably good to make. Like if you can talk to someone's doctor, like if they have underlying medical issues, again, that's something that you probably shouldn't be handling. Um, you like being able to connect with them. And so you can email them be like, is there anything that I need to know about this that I should not be doing or that I should be doing? And I think part of that is because if you don't have like, if you aren't, a registered dietitian or nutritionist or anything like that, it can obviously seem uh, quite intimidating and the potential for the doctor to be like, you shouldn't be doing this. Like this is in my head, what I would imagine they're worried about 
can be quite high. But at the end of the day, like, like you said, you're doing a disservice and you could be doing more harm than good. Mm. Um, and even I think for myself as a nutritionist, I feel like there is a little bit of like this barrier between nutritionists and dietitians in that, like, you know, like uh, a lot of the time I think, and this could be my perceived, like what I think I see, but I think sometimes dietitians feeling like, you know, like anyone who's seeing a nutritionist should be seeing a dietitian kind of thing. But like for me, obviously having worked with dietitians and dietitians that I'm still friends with and that I get along with really well, if someone comes to me with something that's like medical, a lot of the time I'm going to be like, this is probably something that you should go talk to a dietitian and having the connections to be able to go, I know this dietitian, they're in this area, they're really good, makes it a whole lot easier. And the same with doctors. And I think the good thing is, is that when you form those connections, it's a two-way street. Like if you have a good relationship with a doctor or with a dietitian, they're more likely to go, you know what, I know a really good nutritionist who's really good with these things and then refer people back to you. Um, and coming back in that circle, I think it's probably good. And this is what I'd like to see more of is if there are like psychologists or people that are in that kind of mental health space who are particularly good with eating disorders or body image related stuff, connecting them with the coaches and stuff like that, because I think that's an area where there is less connection between the two. Yeah, for sure. Fully agree. We've just been on a 20 minute tangent on that, but if we want to go back to the the realistic rates of um, fat loss for women. Um, Again, just touching on like, obviously the biggest loser magazines, all kind of reporting about, you know, lose this amount of weight in this many weeks. Um, usually a huge amount. And so often what happens is that you'll have female or I'll have female clients come to me. Um, and you know, like with any kind of fat loss, weight loss type approach, usually the first week or two is going to be a little bit faster. Um, and then things tend to slow down. Now where this really, I guess I'm going to say is unfair or sucks is for kind of like smaller women or perhaps women that have, um, less active lifestyles. And so when we're looking at realistic rates of loss, I tend to go off for most people, it's going to be anywhere from 0.5 to 1% of body weight per week. The reason being is that that tends to, in the literature show that it's going to not affect lean body mass too much. Um, and also be probably a little bit more sustainable rather than super aggressive. Um, if someone has a little bit more weight to lose, we can probably go more aggressive, at least initially with that. But that's what we tend to go with. Now, if you just do the simple maths from that, obviously, let's say you like, you know, if you had a hundred, like a guy that weighs a hundred kilos, that could be anywhere from half, like half kilo to one kilo a week as a kind of rate of loss. Whereas if you're with a smaller female, that's automatically going to be a slower rate of loss. You're looking at kind of, you know, like if she's 70 kilos, that's going to be 0.35 to 0.7 kilograms per week. Um, And that's kind of like, you know, on the good end. So there's automatically just due to their body size and the amount of deficit that can be created going to be a slower rate of loss. Like we can't create the same size deficit with the small female that we would use with a large male because they're not going to be eating anything. If we have like male and his maintenance is say 3,500 calories, obviously that gives us a lot more room to create a larger deficit. Like we can take a thousand calories from maintenance put him on 2,500 and that's still going to be doable. The same thing can't be said for like a smaller female because let's say if she had a maintenance of 1,900, 1,800, that same deficit 
would obviously put her in an unsustainable amount of calories. Like she wouldn't be able to eat that much sustainably. And even if she could, like if she managed to do it over time, that's going to be negative for her health. So just as part of having a lower total daily energy expenditure, which comes with obviously having a smaller body size, the deficit can't be the same. So we're never going to see the same rates of loss between a smaller female or a less active female and a larger male or a larger, more active female. When we look at, so with the realistic weights of fat loss for women, I assume you're looking at trends over time, not day to day. Yeah. Great point. So uh, obviously we talk about like 0.1% or 0.5 to 1% per week. Um, That's kind of like we use per week, but often like, especially with females, you're probably going to be looking at a trend at least over like a month's kind of period. Because as we were talking about with females and with everything going on, including, you know, um, uh, changes in hormones during the cycle and stress and things like that. And because of that small or slower rate of loss, like there's more chance for that rate of loss to not become apparent over the course of a week, if that makes sense. Like if you're only losing... 400 grams of fat kind of thing per week. But like you have a large meal (laughs) or anything that's going to be masked. You know what I mean? So we need to kind of give it a little bit more time to show itself, I guess, if that makes sense to be like, okay, well, like we need to trust in the process, make sure that we're controlling the controllable. We're doing all the things we need to be doing. And then over time, we're looking at trends and seeing is whatever measurements we're using, are they moving in the right direction over time? And we need to, because of that small deficit, give it more time to show. Yeah. And I think during that time as well, it's obviously helpful to have more things to focus on than just the scale weight, because there will definitely be weeks or even a couple of weeks where you might not see the scale budge. Whereas you may, if you're looking for other factors that play into that, you might be feeling quite good. You still might be feeling quite energetic. You feel like your clothes are fitting better. Um, And so I guess having other things that play that you can look to to identify your progress is helpful in weeks like that where there is no movement. Yeah. And I think touching back on uh, like the body image stuff as well, that's a, another really good point. And I actually think as I was thinking about this is that that's another reason why we do have other measures of progress. And that I do like part of what I do with my coaching, like one of the first questions that I'll ask weekly is kind of like, you know, list three to five things that you dwell this week. And then we also look at like uh, stress and sleep, um, nutrient density of the diet and stuff like that. So we can go, okay, we'll look like when we started, you know, like your overall stress levels were higher. You weren't eating as many, you know, vegetables and fruits and protein. Like there are other things over time that we're kind of probably focusing on a bit more in terms of, you know, like healthy behaviors and habits that we're gradually making more consistent, that we're improving and we're kind of def. I guess taking that kind of weight number off the pedestal, like it's still there, but we're kind of like, we're just letting it come along for the ride as we improve our habits and behaviors along the way. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. I really like that. Just before we start wrapping up, I just want to touch on protein intake. And I also want to touch on why there are such different recommendations around protein intake as well. Yeah. So I guess from like a, technical standpoint i tend to go anywhere from about 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight 
upwards of kind of, you know, 2.6 grams per kilogram of body weight. And that's going to depend on someone's goals. So if they're in a fat loss or a gaining cycle, or if they're at maintenance, um, as well as how much body fat they might have. So someone who is in a dieting phase who is leaner is going to go towards the upper end of that because they're at a greater risk of losing lean body mass. Someone who is at maintenance or is trying to gain um, and or if they have slightly higher body fat percentage, can probably get away with eating a little bit less protein. Typically, I guess what I'm looking for when I'm working with clients for protein, like we know that total daily protein over the course of the day tends to be the most important factor. So trying to get within that range, more so now than I have before, I've probably been a little bit more flexible with this. So I tend to set like a minimum intake that I want to see hit, as well as kind of like a calorie kind of target. So it's kind of going, you know, like, here's the minimum amount that I want you to hit, which is probably going to be at the lower end of that range. If they want to eat, like if there's someone that likes eating a little bit more protein, then they can. Um, if not, then that's fine. The reasons, I guess, that we want to hit a minimum intake of protein, I mean, outside of what we typically hear in terms of, you know, like it helps us maintain lean body mass. It obviously is satiating, so it helps us regulate our calorie intake, plays a part in our immune system, um, helps us obviously you know, build muscle, all those kind of things is that I think probably one of my biggest arguments. And I think when you were saying, you know, there's so many different, I guess, recommendations around protein intake. I think part of that is because obviously when we look at like the government guidelines or Mm. the uh, recommended daily intakes and that kind of thing is that a lot of that data was built upon the minimum amount needed to avoid deficiencies in protein. Um, And so I think that, there's a large difference between what's needed to avoid an efficiency and what might be optimal. And I guess the other thing is when we talk about optimal, I think we have to consider today's environment. So in our environment today, we obviously know that diseases of abundance is driving a lot of chronic diseases that are causing people to be unwell. So I figure anything within nutrition that can help us regulate our calorie intake and probably fight against that is probably going to be a good move. So if eating a bit more protein helps people eat a bit less of say like, you know, hyper palatable or other calorie dense foods, then that's probably going to be a good move. And then on the other end, we also know that like even on really high protein diets, as long as someone doesn't have pre-existing like kidney conditions, we haven't really seen any negative health detriment to that. So I think, Once you've hit that minimum need, that's cool. If you want to eat more, it might help you if you are someone who struggles with hunger. Um, But yeah, it's just kind of making sure that you're getting a sufficient amount to meet those kind of needs to get the benefits. Touching on vegan diets as well. I know your standpoint on this in terms of absolutely if it's something morally you want to do and you want to pursue that, then 100%. And I have that same viewpoint. But what are some factors for vegans in that area when you consider protein intake? Yeah, I mean, this is an area that is obviously probably one of the areas that vegans probably need to focus a little bit more on. And I guess, especially if it's a vegan diet and someone is trying to lose weight. And the reason is, is that typically plant-based protein sources also tend to come along with uh, a little bit more carbohydrate or fats, which means like they tend to be less what I would call efficient protein sources in that there's less protein per calorie. So protein sources in a vegan diet are going to bring more calories. So if you're trying to 
stick to a certain calorie goal, you probably have to be a little bit more strategic with the protein that you're eating in order to hit the minimum need that you need, uh, as well as sticking within that calorie goal. Um, on top of that, we also know that a lot of plant-based proteins tend to be limiting in certain amino acids, which means like they're uh, not the highest quality of protein. So it means that we need to eat more total <laughs> protein uh, in order to kind of make sure that we're getting enough of kind of all the amino acids and kind of, you know, spiking uh, muscle protein synthesis and things like that. We haven't gone into that list, so I don't want to dive into that. But yeah, so yeah, I guess one of the biggest... I guess issues with this is trying to create diets that hit those protein goals, like even per meal from plant-based sources, which can be quite challenging. And honestly, in the majority of my clients that are plant-based that are vegan, I suggest that they do use a plant-based protein powder for this reason, because it's just going to make hitting those protein goals so much easier. Um, and there's no real reason like there's nothing to say that they shouldn't be like, there's no health detriment to including one or two of those shakes per day, but they're going to make it so much easier. And I did actually notice for the first time, although I haven't seen it with my own eyes, but I think there are plant-based like ready to eat meals coming out now that are, have added pea protein to them, like as a powder in like dials and stuff like that, which I actually think makes so much sense. And if I was someone that was better at cooking with like protein powders in terms of like pea protein, that would probably be something I would say would be worth investing in is if you're making, I don't know, curries, dals, those kind of things, like trying to implement some of those kind of protein powders that are neutral, like not flavored ones, but just kind of natural pea proteins and stuff like that to bring up the kind of amino acid content of that meal, but not spike calories too much, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Are there any other considerations you would make for someone who is a vegan? In general, just with nutrition? In general with nutrition, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're always going to be looking at um, some of the vitamins and minerals and nutrients that tend to be, I guess, less or not found in plant-based kind of um, foods. So obviously like things like B12, most vegans are aware of that now uh, due to like you know, game changes and all the debates that have been going on about it. Um, so B12, um, calcium, it's just generally being aware of those shortfalls and creating a diet around it. And I guess that's part of the thing. If you're going to go on a diet that restricts certain foods, you're always going to have to pay a little bit more attention to make sure that you're meeting those needs that aren't being fulfilled by plant foods. One that I probably see less often um, considered is something like iodine. Um, so that's also something that needs to be considered um, because a lot of the time alongside vegan diets comes kind of like this wellness thing. So like something like pink Himalayan salt and stuff like that. <laughs> um, some of those fancy colored salts, which don't have like iodine added to it. And if they're not drinking milk and if they're not kind of, you know, eating some of these other more processed foods that have um, iodine added to it, then we can actually see iodine kind of not being reached in sufficient amounts. So considering that would probably be something as well. So in that space, would you recommend someone if they're considering making that change to potentially get their bloods done a bit more regularly or how would you even be aware of some of those uh, nutrients and maybe their deficiencies as well? Yeah. So, I mean, you could get blood work done. That would be 
like one way to go about it. And I think there is a new business that I've noticed in Australia it was in the UK actually that I used, which was like, they, this was a bit weird, but they sent blood tests to your home and you did like this crazy finger prick to test, do your own blood work. You sent it back and you got the results yourself. I think within Australia, there's a new business that basically you go to um, the pathology, like you order the tests that you want. You go to pathology, get that, it gets sent to them and then they email you the results. So you don't have to go to a doctor and things like that. I'm not saying you should, shouldn't go to a doctor, but like if you don't want to go through all that hassle and you want to manage it yourself and you know a bit about it, that's one option. Before you even get blood work, I actually think if you are interested in using something like Chronometer, which is a tracking app similar to MyFitnessPal, um, but it is better in terms of nutrients. So basically it's going to give you a much better breakdown of kind of micronutrients, minerals, that kind of thing. So just spending a week entering your food intake or two weeks entering your food intake rather diligently into that might just give you an idea of, okay, well, I'm not getting enough of these particular nutrients. Yeah. Awesome. Great recommendations. And I think that just about covers it. Is there anything else you want to touch on? Any misconceptions that you want people to be aware of when they're on the internet or <laughs> that's a big question. I didn't really think about this uh, <laughs> from the start. I don't think so. I think we kind of covered it. I think it's just any time that something seems too good to be true or seems like a shortcut, you can almost guarantee that it's not likely to, to stick because at the end of the day, like I said, like the journey, the long journey and getting through to that kind of point, is part of the journey. It's a prerequisite, as I kind of like to say, is that you have to go through these challenges. There is no kind of shortcut because those things are going to be the teaching moments that allow you to sustain it in the long run. So yeah, I think anything that seems too good to be true, probably want to stick away from, start kind of thinking about things in the long term. Um, and so tying that back into when we talked about, you know, like freaking out and getting stressed and stuff like that. Like if you eat something, and like this still happens and you feel like you've messed up or you're feeling guilty or shameful about it. I think something that's really helpful is just the ability to be able to do what I call like zooming out. So you can literally think about this like as a camera, like if you're hyper-focused on this one meal and you're like, I've fucked everything. If you zoom out from that and you view like say your week or your month as a whole, like maybe you're eating, you know, 28 meals that week, that one meal or that one day in the grand scheme of things really isn't that big. So just zoom out, view it as that and be like, okay, this isn't such a big deal. I'll just get back onto it the next meal. Yeah, I think that's a great uh, way to look at most things in life. I say that to my clients about training, especially like one bad session doesn't mean that the rest of the sessions are going to be bad um, and making sure, yeah, you kind of like zoom out from that and make sure you look at things as a whole. So I think that's really great advice to wrap up on. But where can people find you online if they want to see more of your content there? I have a website, which is just jamescornnutritionfitness.com. Um, and I think most of my time is probably spent on Instagram these days at j.kunnutrition. Um, I am also on Facebook. I think it's James Kun Nutrition. You'll probably find it with that. I will <laughs> find it and put it in the show notes anyways. So. Yeah. Um, and yeah, feel free. Like basically if someone messages me on Instagram, Facebook, whatever, like I generally try to reply, email, um, I'll get back to you pretty much as soon as possible. If you have any questions about anything, like I'm pretty easygoing and happy to have a chat, broadly answer any questions, as long as it's not like super specific to you and it's kind of like, you know, can I have a plan? 
then you've been I probably judge. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us, James. And like I said, if anyone is wanting to find more of James's content or his work, then just head to the show notes because he does put a lot on Instagram. Awesome. Thank you. And that wraps up today's episode, guys. I hope you enjoyed my chat with James. If you want to find him on Instagram, head to our show notes. If you want to find us, you can see us at Women's Strength Collective 2020 on Instagram and you can find me, your host at Beyonce. I'll see you guys next time.